Good morning, faithful listener. You are listening to the Bible Explained podcast, where the Bible gets explained. So grab your cup of coffee and stay tuned as we read through the book of Deuteronomy. Hi and happy Monday, faithful listeners. This is Jen with the Bible Explained podcast. Today we're going to be discussing the Leverite law and what that means. So let's discuss Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 through 10 and discuss this uh, kind of interesting law about women marrying their brother-in-laws. So once again, that's Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. Grab your cup of coffee or your cup of tea and also your Bible in the version that you prefer, but I'll be reading out of the W.E.B. as usual. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead shall not be married outside to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall succeed in the name of his brother who is dead, that his name not be blotted out of Israel. If the man doesn't want to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up to his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. If he stands and says, I don't want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders and loose his sandal from off of his foot and spit in his face. She shall answer and say, so it shall be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. His name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. Okay, so there's a lot going on here. The first thing that I want to mention is that the Leverite law has nothing to do with the tribe of Levi. The word Levir, Lever, I think it is, I don't know how to pronounce it, but that particular word just means a brother, a husband's brother. So it means like the brother's law. What the brother-in-law was supposed to do when his brother died and left a widow. Now this law, if you really get into the heart of it, is a protection for widows. We know God's heart for widows. I mean, how many times already have we seen in the Old Testament where God says to give justice to the widow, to protect the widow, to uh, include the widow, to give to the widow? I mean, there's there's plenty of verses already that talk about the protection of widows. And this one kind of is along the same lines as those where a, uh, a widow was supposed to be protected. And one of the ways a widow was to be protected was by marrying her brother-in-law when the brother died. But as I read into this, it kind of seems like it only really had to happen if that widow had no children, because children were an asset back in these days. So specifically, if the widow has no children, she would marry one of her brother-in-laws. And that brother-in-law would actually produce a son for her dead husband. So that son wouldn't even technically be his. It would be his brother's. So it's just kind of an interesting law, an interesting rule. And, and God says specifically that it would be so that the man who died, his name would not be blotted out of Israel. He would be, you know, he would have sons. Now there's some debate actually whether or not the firstborn child with the brother-in-law had to be a boy. Because we know from Numbers chapter 27 that uh, daughters could, in fact, inherit their father's property. And that was okay. Like if a man died and he only had daughters, his daughters would inherit the property. But if he had a son, the firstborn son would inherit the property. He would be like the new tribe leader. You know, he would protect the family, all that stuff. So there is some debate whether or not this word son here 
is translated as son or as child. Because it even says here in verse six, it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall succeed in the name of his brother who is dead, that his name not be blotted out of Israel. It doesn't actually give a gender there, whether or not the firstborn had to be a male or a female. Now, I don't know. I don't know, though. Maybe it did have to be a son because it does say son here in verse five. Um, Perhaps other translations say child. I'm not sure. But basically, either way, if this woman, this widow had no children, this entire law would take place and she would be able to have children. This would protect her and keep her safe and not only keep her safe, but it would uh, cause her to not have to go and marry somebody else outside of her husband's family. It would cause her to not go marry some random foreigner and totally leave Israel also. So there was a lot of reasons for this law, but mainly the heart of it is to protect widows once again. So it says here, though, if the husband's brother refuses to um, to take her as a wife for whatever reason, potentially because she's old, she's older and this this brother-in-law does not really like her, does not think she's attractive. We don't know. If the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then the widow would go to the elders of his city. So she'd go to the elders and she would tell them, this is unjust. This is unfair towards me. I have to leave my husband's household because, you know, his, his brother refuses to have me as a wife because I'm not as young as I used to be or because um, he doesn't like me for some reason. And now I have to leave. And this is unfair and unjust towards me. So it says that the elders would bring that brother-in-law in and question him. And if he absolutely had resolve that he did not want to marry his sister-in-law and he said, I will not take her as a wife, then it says that the, the widow would come in in the presence of the elders and she would take the sandal off of his foot and spit in his face. <laughs> oh, this is fun. She shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who's not built up his brother's house. And his name in Israel would be called the man of him who had his sandal removed. So basically, it's like a public shaming. I don't really know the significance of taking the sandal off of his foot. Maybe that was like some sort of ancient insult, kind of like slapping somebody with a glove back in like the the Renaissance days. (laughs) I can imagine it might be the same thing, but I didn't look it up. I didn't look up the significance of uh, the sandal from the foot. But spitting in the face, that for sure is an insult. And I can imagine it's even more insulting coming from a widow, you know, like back in these days, widows weren't really considered to be, you know, high standing individuals, though God was changing a lot of that. But the woman would spit in the guy's face and she would insult him. And then afterward, he would have some amount of public shaming. The house of him who had a sandal removed. So, yeah, something about that sandal being removed wasn't uh, wasn't fun back in these days. But this was done to obviously prevent brother-in-laws from refusing to marry the widows just because they didn't find them attractive or just because they were getting older in years or something along those lines. However, there is an interesting discussion we can have about all this, and I think you guys might know where I'm going because I like to talk about this subject. Polygamy. (laughs) Did this law promote polygamy? 
what if that brother was already married? And, uh, you know, would he be forced to take his brother's widow? Now, because of this, I went down an entire polygamy rabbit hole for you guys. Once again, I went and looked at different biblical instances where the Leverite law was put into place. The first one is with Tamar back in the book of Genesis. I don't know if you guys remember that whole story we talked about in Genesis or if you've read it recently, but Tamar was this poor woman who just couldn't catch a break. She was married to one of Judah's sons, Judah, like the tribe of Judah. She was married to one of his sons who was named Er or Er, I'm not sure. But this guy was like evil. We don't know what he did, but whatever he did, God killed him. And it actually says in scripture that God killed Er or Er because he was evil. So Tamar, who was his wife, got married to his younger brother, Onan. And Onan was also a complete and total, excuse my language, but he was a douchebag because he would sleep with her, but he wouldn't give her, <laughs> he wouldn't give her the semen, okay? He would uh, spill it on the ground is actually what scripture says. So we don't know how long that happened for. I mean, can you imagine this poor Tamar who probably desperately wants kids, I would guess, and has to sleep with her brother-in-law who she's married to and he refuses to give her kids, but still like forces her to engage in the act of sex. Like that's just humiliating. So God also did not like that. And he ended up killing Onan for doing that. So after that, Tamar remained childless and a widow for a very long time because Judah, her father-in-law, refused to give her the last son, the youngest son, as a husband. So Tamar took matters into her own hands and uh, pretended to be a prostitute and slept with her father-in-law, who gave her two children, twins, actually. And that entire story happened. Now, that is a biblical story. Uh, biblical idea of how this entire Leverite law was not supposed to happen. You know, like that's not a good story. The other story, however, is the story of Ruth and Boaz. <clears throat> There's been a lot of speculation as to whether or not Boaz was married before he met Ruth. Many people believe that Boaz was in fact married because he was a high standing individual in the community. You know, he had a field he seemed to be rather well off, rather rich. And most of the time, rich men had wives. I was reading through the story, and I, I think I've had this question before of, of whether or not Boaz was married before he met Ruth. This is my own personal opinion, I should mention, because scripture does not say he was married or not at all. It, it mentions nothing about it. So you can't really say that he was married <clears throat> or that he wasn't married, but I'm under the opinion personally, that Boaz was, in fact, not married. And that is because of Ruth chapter three. I read the entire book of Ruth <laughs> for you guys, though it's not very long. It's only four chapters. But I read it because it talks a lot about the Leverite law in this book. Now, Boaz was not a brother-in-law. And we do know that it didn't necessarily have to be a brother-in-law or a brother per se, that married the widow, just the next of kin. In other words, the widow was not supposed to just marry outside of her family. She had to find somebody inside of her family to be married to. But Boaz was one of Ruth's husband's 
family members. So Ruth chapter three talks about Boaz a little bit. And this is the one reason why I believe very strongly that Boaz was not married or he was a widower himself. And this is because he lived at his work. (laughs) He did not go home. In fact, we see no evidence of him ever going home from his work. Most men, I would guess, if they were married, especially if they were of high moral character like Boaz was, and not only was Boaz of high moral character, but he very much cared about the lives of women. He was taking care of Ruth as a widow before he even married her. He was, he was practicing God's law. And he made sure that his men didn't touch her. He was very careful of the women. And he had women working for him, actually, it says also. So this man, Boaz, was high moral character, high regard for women. And if he was like that, even in his workplace, and if he was like that with uh, his community and whoever else, which it's clear that he was, why would he treat his wife like crap and not go home to her? Here's what it says. It says, uh, Ruth chapter three, starting in verse one, one day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, Boaz, with whom, with whose women you have worked is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. (laughs) Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, go down to the threshing floor. Don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is laying, go and uncover his feet. So why the heck would Boaz stay at his job if he had a wife? Why wouldn't he go home? To me, that, that's just an inconsistency in his character, a kind man that cares for women. I don't know why he would just stay at his workplace without any regard for his wife at all. I mean, he's not eating with his wife. He's not feeding her, bringing food home to her. This just makes no sense to me, especially for this day and age. So it's likely that Boaz was widowed himself or just uh, unmarried. Now, moving forward in the story of Ruth chapter four, this situation takes place where Boaz is actually not the closest relative to Ruth or somebody even closer or rather Ruth's husband. There was somebody even closer. So Boaz had to go ask him if he would marry Ruth. So it says here that Boaz uh, went to the elders of the town and found this relative that was closer to Ruth's husband. So he says, are you going to redeem, you know, Ruth basically? And in verse six, it says at this, the guardian redeemer said, I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. And then moving down to verse eight, it actually says the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. This included property, by the way, not just Ruth. But it's just kind of funny that this uh, close relative to Ruth's husband, who potentially could have and should have redeemed her, was likely married himself and likely had kids himself. So he removes his own sandal to to give Ruth uh, to Boaz, basically, and says, no, I'm not... I'm not redeeming her. I'm not going to endanger my own estate by having another wife. And um, yeah, so personally, I think that God's heart is always for one man and one woman. It's clear in scripture. It's extremely clear in scripture. And there's no evidence that the Leverite law 
promotes polygamy. It likely was for somebody who was unmarried. And actually, even Jewish tradition says the same thing, that it was probably um, an unmarried younger brother. But regardless, because God's heart all throughout scripture is one man, one woman. We see that with just different laws. We see that in the New Testament where God says, you know, every man should have his own wife and every woman should have her own husband. Then technically, a man would be breaking that particular law that God gives about one man and one woman if he married his brother's widow and took in another wife because that would be technically breaking God's law for one man and one woman. And let's even go back to the to the Old Testament where it says that leaders should not have multiple wives. It says that multiple means two or more. <laughs> in other words, a leader was supposed to have one wife. That leader, if his brother died, would be breaking God's law for one wife if he took a widow into his home, even if he was following the Leverite law. This is why I believe God's design is one man and one woman, because God doesn't convolute lines like that. He's not the author of confusion. It actually says that in scripture. He doesn't try to confuse people. So personally, no, I do not think that this promotes polygamy. However, did polygamy happen? I'm sure it happened. I'm sure it happened actually quite a bit. But that doesn't mean that that was God's design. But what we do know from the Leverite law was that God cared for the widow. He cared for women. But because women were not as respected back in the days of the Israelites, God is just putting another protection in place to protect the widowed woman who would have had absolutely nothing if her husband died. Well, faithful listeners, with today's portion, you can see God's heart for widows once again in scripture. He's assigning them value and care. I hope that you guys enjoyed today's episode and that you learned something. Sorry that I talk about polygamy a lot. It's a fun little topic for me. This might not be the end of me talking about polygamy. But anyway, um, I hope that you guys enjoyed today's episode. You learned something. If you did, please share it on your social media platforms. I'm actually thinking about doing a giveaway pretty soon here. Just a small one. I'll be talking about the details of that in the upcoming episode. So make sure you tune in so you don't miss it. But I'll see you guys tomorrow for an episode out of John. Happy listening and God bless.